Wow, class four. Can you believe how fast that goes? And uh, so tonight will be the last portion of our teaching for David's Tabernacle. Of course, we have one more Wednesday night in May, next Wednesday. But rather than doing the teaching, we're going to do a blowout worship meeting. And just, we're going to build David's Tabernacle right in here. Come on, is that awesome? So we're going to have a full team, worship team, and uh, probably just share five minutes and just just prayer and get us all on the same page and then just just go in and worship the Lord for, for a night of worship. So encourage you, bring your friend, and uh, next Wednesday night is going to be very powerful. Um, I want to pick back up where we left last class. Class three, we, we were on the second part of the infrastructure of David's tabernacle. Um, and, and we talked about the infrastructure. And we were going through some of the, the tiers of leadership that David had assigned around the ark that gave the Lord worship day and night, night and day. Who can tell me what one of those things that we talked about last week was? One of those, those tiers of leadership or groups of people, if you will. The scribes. Good job, Dela. The scribes. We talked about, right, David assigned scribes who were responsible for, for transcribing the, the rhythm, the melodies, the, the, that, that amazing blend of day and night worship. And they produced it into words. And they gave the presence of God context and language and infrastructure for the rest of the people. I, I didn't mention this about the scribes, but I will last week. Um, isn't it interesting, the book of Psalms? How many like the book of Psalms? When I first got saved, and I didn't know anything about reading the Bible, nothing. I didn't know where to start, where to, how to read it. And someone told me, they said, I'm going to start you on a good reading plan. And they said, if you commit to it for 30 days, it will change your life. But you got to commit to it. And I was serious, and I was like, all right. And they said, I want you to read just a psalm, chapter psalm a day, and a chapter of Proverbs a day. And I did for 30 days. And, man, it, it I, I did it for actually three years straight. I just kept reading it over and over. I read other stuff, but I would make that daily, I would read Psalm and Proverbs. I got so much out of it. Because if you've ever looked from the broad perspective of the book of Psalms, it teaches you how to worship God. It teaches you how to be expressive in your prayer life, in your worship life. But not only that, it encourages you because there's a lot of good Psalms in there where it's like I was in the pit, the miry clay, but he set my feet upon a rock and gave me a new song to sing. And I could identify with that. Couldn't you identify with that? Being stuck in life in the mud, but then God coming rescuing down. What imagery, what poetic language that, that was happening. But I want to encourage us, the scribes from David's tabernacle were putting those kind of words into context. Now, David wrote, I think it's like 75 of the Psalms. There's 150, right? But the rest of the Psalms were written basically by his chief musician leaders, like Asaph and, and, and He-Man and, and, and all those other musicians. They, they, they poured into the book of Psalms. One other thing about the Psalms that I love. The Psalms are connected to David's identity. Do you remember David's identity? He was a man after God's own heart. And so part of his identity was to express that in reality. How did David express that phrase, a man after God's own heart, 
into reality. It was these psalms. That's why I like to say it's, it's literally in the middle of the Bible. It's the heart of the Word of God. Woo! He's expressing who he is through these psalms. So there's so many really cool things about it. Okay, scribes anointing. Who remember the other one we talked about? We talked about a second other group of people. The singers, yes. Yep, the 4,288 singers and musicians who sung to the Lord, giving what? Praise and specifically thanks. Thanks. Again, why is that important? The Lord told me one time, I, I was talking to the Lord, and, and I was talking to him about pride. And, you know, I was doing a study on, on when Satan fell out of heaven, and we all know that it was like pride was the number one sin that, that Satan looked at himself, pride, and, and the Lord tossed him out of heaven. So I was asking God about pride because it's something that we're all susceptible to. And so I said, this, this huge thing that knocks down so many people, so many, even seasoned saints, over time, if they're not careful, spiritual pride creeps in. How is that thing defeated? And the Lord spoke very clearly. So he said, it's very easy, Michael. I said, it is. And he said, being thankful. Being thankful and having a heart of gratitude actually dethrones pride. It, it puts a protective barrier where pride can't seep in. Why? Because when we give thanks to him and a lifestyle of just being content with where we are, being content with our environment, even if it ain't going our way, or even if we're in that season of prolonged waiting. Come on, in that song, he's in the waiting. And as we give thanks from that place, pride can't come in because he's enthroned. He's centralized. So then you multiply that to 4,288 singers who are getting paid to do that as their primary role. I mean, come on. So it's just a beautiful thing. So let's pick up there before we get into tonight's class. And there was the third tier. The third tier was the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers. So I want to talk about the anointing and the ministry of the gatekeepers. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 9. Um, there's, a, there's kind of a really good detailed description of the gatekeepers. And, uh, and I just want to kind of get into that for a little bit. All right, 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And let's start in verse, uh, verse 17, and we'll skip around a little bit. It says, the gatekeepers. <laughs> It'll list the names. If you, if you drop down a little bit, it says, these were the gatekeepers belonging to the camp of the Levites. Shalom, son of Korah, the son of Ebiaseph, the son of Korah, and his fellow gatekeepers from his family. Here, look what it says. They were responsible for guarding the threshold of the tent, just as their fathers had been responsible for guarding the entry place to the dwelling of the Lord, which is a reference to the tent of Moses. If you, uh, if you skip down a little bit more, let's go to verse 22. Altogether, those chosen to be gatekeepers at the threshold numbered 212. It's a lot of gatekeepers, isn't it? They were registered by genealogy. How many remember that from last week? That's important. Encourage you to know your genealogy. In their villages, the gatekeepers, here we go, had been assigned to their position of trust by David and Samuel the seer. Samuel the seer. They were descendants, and their descendants were in charge of guarding the gates to the house of the Lord, the house called the tent. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, 
They were on the east, the west, the north, and the south. Their brothers in their villages had, had to come from time to time to share in their duties for seven-day periods. But there were four principal gatekeepers who were Levites, and they were entrusted, here's another, another interesting fact, with the responsibility of the rooms and the treasuries in the house of God. They would spend the night stationed around the house of the Lord because they had to guard it, and they had charge of the key. My goodness. They had charge of the key for opening it each morning. Isn't that amazing? These are the gatekeepers. So David not only assigned singers, not only did he assign scribes, but now we see him assigning gatekeepers who were Levites around the tabernacle of David, the, the worship day and night prayer. Here's five marks of the gatekeeper I just wanted to hit. The first one it said was it was they were assigned a position of trust. They were assigned a position of trust. You had to be trusted to be a gatekeeper. You had to be trusted. You had to have a, be a person of high character who could be trusted with very important things. It was a great responsibility. What does this mean to you and I today? Part of God restoring and rebuilding David's tabernacle today is God is rebuilding men and women in the church who will have a position of trust with the Father, that they will have and hold a position of high trust with God. And what does that trust look like? It looks like character. It looks like character. They had great and deep character. And I believe God is raising that up. That, that gatekeepers, note that, they are gatekeepers who are, who are people of high character. Marked more than, more than anointing and gifting. We'll get into that in a little bit. You need anointing and gifting. Anointing and gifting has its place. But character, I think, has a deeper place. And that's what's important to the Lord. And so gatekeepers had to be people of, of great character. Second thing, they guarded the gates of the tabernacle and later the temple. They guarded the gates. They guarded the gates. Now, Jerusalem had 12 gates into it. What a study that is, is to actually go through all the 12 gates and what they mean and represent. But, but these gatekeepers had guarded the gates also into the tabernacle. Now, it says that there were four directions, right? The north, south, east, and west. And so they were stationed at those directions. Well, what does that mean to us tonight? You have to guard the house of the Lord. You have to guard the presence of God. There, there's a responsibility to guard and steward the presence of God when He's moving. There is a responsibility to steward that. Being in revival history, I loved and studied the Azuzu Street Revival for many, 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 many years and months. And one thing about the Azuzu Street Revival is that William Seymour, the one-eyed African-American man that God used to ignite it, he was a gatekeeper. I, I believe God raised him up as a gatekeeper to that mission. And one of the things about Seymour that always struck me is that he was so, you know, he was so humble. And they said that he would take the shoebox and put it over his head. And he would, he would put an old shoebox over his head and not feel the pressure of the people around him and hear what God was trying to say to him for the next move or the next thing. And when he took his head out of the shoebox, 
he'd say the Lord spoke, and this is what the Lord said, and this wave of miracles would come into the warehouse. Now, when, when a wave of miracles would come in, now, come on, we've been in a few meetings. Have you been in one of those meetings where it gets really good? And people just start shouting all kind of good and all kind of crazy. And sometimes it's hard to discern. Is this like some distraction or some demonic thing going on? Or is this somebody that is just overwhelmed by the love of God and the Holy Spirit going on? That would happen often in the warehouse. So Seymour had this unique ability to be able to distinguish that. And to the person who was acting out and it was demonic, then they would take proper precautions and they would do deliverance ministry on them. But to those who were just getting really loud, just because they were excited and, and the Lord was manifesting on them. But, but again, it was kind of distracting from the overall picture of what God wanted to do. You know what Seymour would do? He'd just go just like this and he'd go, hey, hey, how are you, how are you doing? And he said, he said, look, just Jesus in this place. No flesh in his presence. And he smiled, he rubbed her hand. He said, God bless you. God bless you. Just like that. You know, wow, what a gatekeeper. And he was able, you know, some of us would be like, stop, <laughs> you're in the flesh, get out or go over there. Because if, if you responded that way in the atmosphere of miracles and the supernatural, it would bring a fear on the people. It would. People would get afraid and scared because of now it's like this whole, the whole thing, the dove, the Holy Spirit has just flew out of the room because flesh gets in the way. So there was a whole proper way to, to keep the gate. So there, there's a responsibility to guard and steward the move of God in that way. I, I believe God is raising up people in our day that are going to have that ability. They're going to have the ability to steward what the Spirit is doing. They're going to be so sensitive and so in tuned that they'll be able to flow from one step to the next and just be perfect channels and conduits. Like, we, like we've, we've seen glimpses of it, but I really believe God is going to have a company of people that are going to be stationed like that. Okay, so not only did they guard, listen to this, they had charge over the treasuries and the storerooms. They had charge over the treasuries and storerooms. Later, when the temple was built after the tabernacle, they would build these m massive storerooms on the side of the temple where they would house the tithe and the offering and the treasuries and all the things that came in and all the other different utensils and dedicated things. So these storerooms were important. They held valuable things. Again, what does that mean to us? What does that point to? Gatekeepers have a responsibility to steward revelation from the Lord. Revelation from the Lord. You know, it may be a big surprise, but, but heaven doesn't run on the American dollar <laughs> or the euro or any other currency. What is the currency of heaven? I mean, I mean, we could probably toss out a few possibilities. But I like to think one of the currencies is the revelation of the Holy Spirit, of the Father, of the Word that comes down to His children. Because when revelation comes to us, it really has an ability to change everything. It can change our life like that. It can change our direction, our marriage, our anything. It, could just, it, it, just, it can change. But what I've learned about revelation is that that the Lord just won't entrust his secrets to anybody. 
Remember in Amos, he says, I reveal my secrets to the prophets, right? So there's a, there, is a, there is a call to maturity and spiritual growth to be able to handle the mystery and the revelation that God wants to bring. Have you ever noticed that for some folks, revelation, you know what I'm, everybody knows what I mean about revelation, right? Just like straight up, oh my Lord, I've never seen that before. This is unbelievable. And you know it's the Lord? For some people, it just flows naturally. And they just walk in this almost funnel of revelation, and it's just spouting everywhere, and things are just coming out. And for other folks, it's harder. And, they, I mean, they're studying the Word. They're, they're, they're in the Word. They're, they're, they're mature. But it's just, it's just harder for them to have that flow and that revelation to come. Again, I, I don't know the answer why. Um, there could be numerous possibilities. But I do know one thing. Gatekeepers in the Spirit, there is an anointing for the people of God to be gatekeepers. And that anointing looks like he can trust you with the revelation of the Word and the revelation of the Spirit. Because when, when that comes, his presence comes. His presence comes. L let me consider Moses, for example. Y you remember Moses? All right, listen to Moses. Let me go there real quick. Exodus chapter 4, or excuse me, yeah, Exodus chapter 4 is where God called Moses. God called Moses. He called him with a great task, didn't he? He, he? he called him to lead the people out of slavery that had been there for 400 years to oppose the perennial world power of the day and to defy a, a prime minister of a nation, if you will, right to his face. And basically said, listen, give me your revenue. Give me your national revenue and your economic system, which were the slaves. Because they were making all the money and doing all the things for the nation. And they're going to come with me. I mean, what a call that God would have on this man who grew up 40 years in Egypt. But then, right, he was 40 years in the desert when the call came to him. Just walk with me for a second. You, you know Moses, right? I mean, think of Moses. I'm, we're talking Moses. I mean, we're talking about the dude that plagues from heaven came at, at, after his command. Like when he sent the word of the Lord. I mean, gnats and flies, the river turning into blood, firstborn children, mass murder, genocide. I mean, it, just, it looks bad. But, I mean, it's supernatural occurrences were flowing through Moses. Go into the wilderness, the Red Sea parting, manna from heaven falling, a million people in the desert, bread from heaven falling, sandals not wearing out, clothes not wearing out, kings being destroyed, lightning bolts coming from the ark, a box that was destroying the nations of the world. Ah, supernatural things. Said that he prophesied. The spirit of prophecy was on Moses. Seventy elders God gave his spirit to the 70 elders. I mean, it goes on and on. His, uh, Aaron's rod budding. Remember the hole opening up in the earth to swallow the rebellion from Korah. I mean, just think of all the supernatural. This is Old Testament. This isn't Acts. This isn't New Testament. This is Old Testament. Going on a mountain. Fasting for 40 days without water. Coming down in his face. Shining so brilliant that people couldn't even look at him. Are you kidding me? This is supernatural living here. And you think about that man. And why did God choose that man? 
And why did God use him in that, that way? He was a gatekeeper. He was a gatekeeper to a nation. But why would God use him in that level, in that capacity? See, a lot of times we think, right, God chooses us and, and, and all this because of what we can bring to the table. And because of how maybe smart we can be or how eloquent we can sound. How, 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 how awesome we could be and, and work our heart and our best. And, and those things, you know, could have their place. But when it comes to the Spirit of the Lord and God using people for His purpose, the Bible says He seeks the foolish things of the world. The foolish things of the world that confound the wise. Do you, you do remember we're talking about Moses, who couldn't even talk. Going before Pharaoh and saying, people go. Could you imagine that? Good God. Could you imagine that? Huh? You know, I don't know if anybody's ever had a speech impediment or speech problem. I mean, that's hard just one-on-one. Imagine going to a world ruler who they'll behead you if you look at them wrong and, and trying to do that. He said, God, you have got the wrong person. You know, Aaron. And, of course, God was upset with that. He said, well, I'll use Aaron. I'll use both of you. He said, but I'm going to speak through you. What a reminder. Listen. So why did God use Moses that way? I know it's a little rabbit trail, but it ties in. Because in Numbers 12, 3 is our answer. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it said that Moses, before he was faithful, it says, it says he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. He was the meekest man. Not just in the nation, not just in the but in the face of the earth, he was humble. He was so humble. I mean, to have a speech problem like that, and God knows what else. I mean, just that he was humble. And that's why God used him. Out of that humbleness, he was faithful in God's house with everything. That's why he said, I'm going to speak to you clearly, Moses. <laughs> he said, I'm going to speak to you clearly, not in riddles. What are you saying? I'm saying gatekeepers walk in character Character is the vehicle for God's presence. Character is the vehicle for God's presence. It's how he moves it and, and, and how it goes. So again, I, I just want to encourage us. God is raising up in our day gatekeepers that are going to be marked with the character of heaven and the character of God. They're going to be so forged in the place of character and integrity and deep deep trust and faithfulness with the Lord, that God is going to be able to trust his secrets. Again, let's review revival history. Azusa Street, it was marked by this revelation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The holiness revival in the 1800s that preceded it was marked by this revelation of holiness and sanctification. The great second great awakening revival was marked by justification by faith, salvation, it was all marked. But what had to happen is God had to build a people of character to be able to handle the weight of that revelation so it wouldn't go to their head. Come on. When God began to move mightily, they could handle it. They could handle it. I believe we're in that day. People can handle the presence. Mm. Last thing they held, keys to the tabernacle and to the temple. 
They had keys to the tabernacle and the temple. This speaks of access points to the presence of God to the people. Remember Matthew 16, 19, the Lord said, I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom that whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loose in earth. Gatekeepers have to have keys. They have keys to revival. They have keys to awakenings, keys to movements that God wants to breathe and birth into the earth. They do. They have keys. So I feel like there's definitely some gatekeepers in this house tonight. The next step is you need to be asking the Lord, what kind of keys is he giving you? And what kind of keys do you have? What kind of keys is he trusting you with to, to look? Last, and this is the last thing about the gatekeeper is discernment. Gatekeepers needed to walk in a high, high level of discernment. Isn't that right, baby? Me and Amber have been talking about this a lot lately. Discernment. There's a lot I could say on that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, it's listed as one of the spiritual gifts, right? It's called the distinguishing of spirits or the discerning of spirits in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. The Greek word for the gift of discernment is diakrisis. I think I'm saying that right. D-I-A-K-R-I-S-I-S. Diakrisis. The word describes being able to, listen to this, distinguish, discern, and to judge or praise. Now, here's what, what stuck out to me. A person, a statement, a situation, or an environment. A lot of times when we think of discernment, we want to run to, I'm going to discern whether this person's good or evil. Are they for me or against me? Or are they, what are they doing? Or, you know, it's, it's number, or we always gravitate to the person. But I also want to call to our knowledge tonight and notice you that it's not just a person, but it's an environment. It's a situation that could be happening in the room. So gatekeepers had to be on their toes, and they had to be always evaluating and considering the atmosphere and the environment. Was God not moving? Why is he not moving? Is God moving? Where is he moving at? Let's jump on that. You know, there was a continual evaluation of, it would be like us, Sunday morning. Who's here Sunday morning? What a powerful time of worship. Amen? That was with Sunday morning. I mean, the Lord was just moving. I'm going to quiz you now. Oh, you were here on Sunday morning. Out of all the songs, and all of them were good, did you notice one of the songs had a, like, umph on it from the Spirit of the Lord? What song was that? The, the which one? The race one. I will run. Did you notice that? You guys that were here, all, I mean, all that we're giving worship to the Lord, his presence is all on it. But if you took note on the song, I will run, there was a, there was a oomph on it. And we stayed on that and camped out on that for a while because God was really moving on that song. A gatekeeper knows how to discern that and evaluate that. They know how to take that in consideration and saying, God is speaking through this song right now more than any other thing. Now, what are you saying through this song? What are you saying through this expression? And going that way opens up the presence even more. And then we begin to step in, into, into places where, I mean, we don't know what could happen. Miracle signs and wonders, people popping out of wheelchairs and the deaf hearing and, and all those kinds of things. So it is a journey. But isn't that exciting that we could come to church and be in an adventurous atmosphere like that? Mm. My goodness. So the Lord is training us all how to be gatekeepers and how to be able to discern that. Amen.
that good stuff. So that's the gatekeeper. Okay, I want to transition now to the last portion of this class, and uh, I want to go back to the finale of David's Tabernacle. We have that PowerPoint ready. I, I got a PowerPoint that will kind of go by in your outline. David's Tabernacle. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 5. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. I'm going to share a secret with you tonight that the Lord shared with me about, about this. I think it does. Absolutely, it goes with discernment. It sure does. Second Chronicles 5, if you go back to the, the first one there, 5, 2, let's stay there for a few minutes. I want to get us back all on the same page right here, okay? So this is, remember, the, the outline of the tent of Moses and the tabernacle of David. We've kind of been hitting both here, right? So let's go down the tent of Moses, the function and the structure and the revelation of it. Remember, the tent of Moses in the, in the courtyard, when you walked in, it had the brazen altar where the animal sacrifices were. Next to the brazen altar, you had the lavar, the laver, excuse me, the lavar, I always call it the laver, the wash basin, I'll use that word, <laughs> the wash basin where the priests would wash before they entered into the holy place, into the tent, right? When they entered into the tent, they had the table of showbread, and then after that, they had uh, the seven golden lampstand, and in front of the veil, they had the altar of incense, and then, of course, in the tent of Moses, behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. However, in our class, because we've been walking through the history, remember the Ark was separated from the tent of Moses. So the Ark was with the tent of David, but everything else was with the tent of Moses. And so also, remember, the priests were stationed at the tent of Moses. Who remembers where the tabernacle of Moses was during David's day? Gibeon. There you go, Gibeon. It was at Gibeon. So the priest, Zadok, and that priesthood was at Gibeon 24-7, just like the Old Testament, the law, right? They were offering sacrifices day and night, night and day. The only thing different was they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the tent of David, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was under a tent. Who remembers where David put the Ark at in David's tabernacle? Mount Zion, right outside the city of David. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was in that tent, and this is where the infrastructure that we've been talking about, this is just kind of the overview of it. He, is, he aligned four chief prophetic musicians, right, to direct all the worship teams. Underneath the chief prophetic musicians, you had 24 worship teams that consisted of 12 members each that were worshiping the Lord day and night, night and day. And then you had the three levels of infrastructure under them, which were the singers, 4,288 of them, the scribes, and then the gatekeepers. What a picture. Isn't that something? It, what, what a powerful picture. And remember, these two were operating independent of one another, correct? Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's hit the next slide. A little bit deeper. So in 2 Chronicles 5, 2, we read something really interesting. David comes to the end of his reign. Remember, David had this thing in his heart. He said, why am I living in a palace and the ark is under a tent? And he had this dream in his heart to build a dwelling place for the presence of God. And we know that's how the temple came, right? Solomon's temple. 
And so David got the the structure for the temple and basically took the structure, the infrastructure of the tabernacle of David and, and built that in a building, the Solomon's temple. But remember, God said, you can't build the temple, David. You've shed too much blood. Your son Solomon is going to be the one who builds it. But David laid everything out. He had everything in place, the infrastructure, the whole vision of it. But Solomon was the one that was going to build it. So here in 2 Chronicles 5, we pick up on that. David has now passed away. Solomon has now built the temple. Now the temple is built, right? Just have that visual. The temple is now built, but it's empty. Why? Because the ark is still under the tent at Mount Zion, and the tent of Moses is still at Gibeon, just a little bit over the hill. So what do they do? They have a procession. They have a procession. And a lot of people don't catch this, but here's the secret. Chapter 5, verse 2, let's read it. It said, and then Solomon summoned Jerusalem to the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. The city of David. All the men of Israel came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. Side note, timing is important, is it not? Anybody want to take a guess at what festival this was in the seventh month? Tabernacles, close. Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. These are the ten holy days that lead into tabernacles. But remember, it starts with Rosh Hashanah. And that is the countdown to the high holy days or the days of all. They always usually happen in September on our calendar. But Rosh Hashanah, real quick, was important to Israel. It was the head of the new year. And so Jews believe, this is Jews now, they believe that at Rosh Hashanah, it's a time in heaven where God would open the books of life and would, would, would seek out the people, would, would, would look over their actions and their behaviors over the past year and then really make a judgment to their life for the following year. That's what they believed. So Jewish folks, and in this time, what this time was, it was a time of repentance and forgiveness. So they would seek forgiveness from, from God first. They would ask the Lord for forgiveness for things that they may have sinned against the Lord. But then they would seek out their brother, and they would ask forgiveness for their brother. Even if, even if there wasn't an altercation, like Matthew 5, right? The Lord says, even if you think your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go make it right. This was that time. This, this was that time. And so what I want us to see is that the whole nation was coming under this environment of forgiveness and repentance because they were getting ready to do something, y'all. Come on. That was so profound and so important to the Lord. So let's go, let's go back. When verse 4 when the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark, and they, here we go, and they brought the ark, here's the word, are you ready? And, and, I'm not an English major, but I do know one thing, and serves as a conjunction, that's going to break up two thoughts, the ark of the covenant, and the tent of of meeting. That is Moses' tent. That is the tabernacle of Moses. So we're going to bring up the ark 
and we're going to bring up the tent. Now, remember in the Old Testament, when they would march through, the ark would go first before the nation, right? And then everything followed behind it. So when they're getting this procession ready, what are they doing? They're getting the ark first because the presence always goes first. Come on now. So the ark is going to come first, and then the tent of Moses is going to follow it. Now look, it says, And then the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it, the priests and the Levites carried them up. And the King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel had gathered about him, were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. They could not be recorded or or counted sheep and cattle. I mean, tens of thousands, I would imagine. Tens of thousands of sheep and cattle lined up. Blood was flowing all over the place. Smoke was rising almost in every direction. Why? Because there was an offering of forgiveness going up to the Lord. Do you see what's happening? Come on now. In class one, remember this why this was so important. When the two priests... Eli's sons took the ark without consulting the Lord and without doing it in the prescribed way. They brought shame and all that stuff. All that stuff was happening, and they didn't do any sacrifices because under that system, blood was needed, come on, to give mercy over the law so God can have mercy on his people. So they're wronging or they're righting a wrong, if you will. Do you see that? They're righting a wrong where their forefathers had got it wrong. They said, not this time. We're going to do it right. I want you to, it goes down, they, the, the, verse 7, the priest then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place, look at this, in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, put it under the wings of the cherubim. Skip down, verse 10, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of Moses had placed in, in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Did you guys notice that? Only the tablets, the Ten Commandments are in the ark. What were the other two things that were in the ark? Manna and the golden bowl and Aaron's rod. What happened to them? I, I don't know. <laughs> what a great study. But I challenge you, why aren't they there? There's a reason why. But they're missing. Anyway, the, tent, the, the, the law is there. The Ten Commandments are there. Now, here's where it gets real exciting. Verse 11. Then the priests withdrew from the holy place. Now, all the priests were there and had consecrated themselves regardless of the division. Now, it gives us another clue. Look at this. All the Levites who were there, the musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jadothan, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east of the altar, dressed in fine linen, and began to play cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied... Circle that by 120 priests. You know, the Bible's specific. 120 priests sounding trumpets, the trumpeters and the singers joining in unison. Oh, man. In, 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 in raising one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices and sang to the Lord this song, He is good and His love endures forever. What I, what I want us to see is that here's the first part of this, is they're bringing in the ark. 
And when they're bringing in the ark, what is this a picture of? It's the 33-year paradigm of David's tabernacle. That was revolutionary. It was new. Remember, there was no veil. That means all access to the presence. And the new thing was all these musicians, singers, gatekeepers, and, and scribes. All of this was going on. What, this was a new expression, a new revelation that God gave David. So this, this whole part is they're now bringing the ark with worship and praise and intercession. I mean, it's just filling the place, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of the revelation David brought. Because the revelation that David brought through David's tabernacle was the revelation of worship, the pure revelation of worship. The tent of Moses, on the other hand, brought a different type of revelation, and it was the revelation of the priesthood. And you need both. You need both. When they, when they brought those things in and they set them down, they brought the ark first, and when they brought the ark, they brought in the rest of all the instruments, and then they begin to lay it out, and everything was there. Do you see this picture? The ark had been separated from the tent of Moses for approximately 93 years. How do you get that number, Mike? If you read, remember, when the ark was captured by the Philistines from Eli and his two sons, it went to the Philistines, and then they sent it back to Kareth Jerem, where it stayed for 20 years. After the 20-year mark, the prophet Samuel comes up, makes intercession, but it still stays there. After Samuel makes intercession, King Saul becomes king right after that. King Saul reigns for 42 years, never touches the ark. It stays at Kareth Jerem, 42 plus 60, or excuse me, 42 plus 20. Is 62, right? Sarah, 62 years. David becomes king first of Judah, which he reigned for seven years. Then after the seventh year, when he becomes king of the whole nation, is when he brings the ark. So then add seven years to 62. How many years are we looking? 69, 70 years. I'm sorry, 93. I don't know where I got that. 70 years. Hey, isn't that interesting? You know, Israel right now is in their 70th, 70th year of, as a state, as a nation. 70 years. It's a long time. So the ark had been reunited with the tent of Moses in the temple. I mean, that's unbelievable. But that's not the best part, of course. What's the best part? What happens? Look what happens. In 2 Chronicles 5, verse, was that? 13, after they sang with a loud voice in unison, they sang the song, He is good and loves forever. His, and love endures forever. Here it is. And then the temple was filled with a cloud. My goodness. The temple was filled with a cloud. A mist in the atmosphere. And the priests could not perform their service because the cloud Remember, they had all these functions they had to perform, but they were now unable to. This wasn't in the spirit, in the bit. This was in the natural, man. This was a cloud rolled in. Have you ever been in a meeting where, where a mist came in? I've, been, I've seen it like once or twice where, where a cloud would roll into the atmosphere. And this thing was so heavy as it rolled in that the priests 
couldn't even minister. See, when God shows up, ministry's over. Don't need it. No need for it. He's here. He shows up. But watch this progression. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I'm going to say that again. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We know that word glory is kabod or kabod, which is, means weight, heavy weight begins to fill the temple. But go one more step with me. If you turn your Bible over, go to chapter 7. 7 verse 1. When the temple and the cloud, if you just get that picture now, they're in the temple, inside the temple. Not outside, they're in the temple. Now the cloud is starting to form, it's starting to develop. And what does Solomon do? He responds by praying. Again, we have this beautiful picture of worship under the Lord, David's tabernacle, and then prayer and intercession out of that worship. What comes after Solomon's prayer? He, when he dedicates this to the Lord. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire. Woo! Fire. I, you got to say it with some strength in you. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Look, look, look. And the priests couldn't even enter in. The priests couldn't even enter into the temple because of the Lord and the glory of the Lord filled it. Not only was it just inside the four walls, but it began to expand outside of the dimensions. And now the whole atmosphere is beginning to be filled with the glory of God. Look, one more thing. And above the temple, it says, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and then the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt and fell on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped God and gave thanks, saying, the Lord is good and his love endureth forever. Why is that important? Because when the ark was stolen... It said that Inkabod was born. And Inkabod means the glory had departed. Gone. The glory never returned until this moment. Until the ark was reunited with the tent of Moses. Until the two paradigms became one. And the old and the new merged for the present. Even in David's tabernacle, even the 33 years of unending worship, prayer, and intercession did not hasten the glory back. It, what are you saying? That wasn't the whole purpose of David's tabernacle. Oh, my God. The whole purpose of David's tabernacle was to return the glory back to the people. So when Amos 9:11 says, in the last days, I'm going to rebuild the fallen tent of David, He's saying there's a generation that's going to come in the last hour. And when I rebuild and restore intercession into the earth and rebuild and restore day and night worship and prayer and build and restore the old and the new, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the very, when I restore that, then I'm going to return the glory back to my church. God Almighty. Woo! 
Jesus, I can't help it. Hey, hey, shoot, Jesus. Mm. The glory, the glory, the glory, Lord. Send the glory, Lord. Whoo. The glory. The glory of his presence. Whoo. It's deep and it's strong. It's weighty. And we haven't even tasted of it yet. This is Old Testament. This is, this is what blows my This is the Old Testament. But don't you see the parallels in a story called the upper room in Acts chapter 2? Do you see the parallels? When how many were gathered? 120, just as there were 120 priests. And in the upper room, you had 120 Melchizedek priests who were now having the Jesus tabernacle living inside of them. Birth in there, right? They, 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 were, they were following Jesus. They were waiting in the upper room. And it said that when the day of Pentecost came on the festival, let me tell you what, God can come at a point in time. God can come in a scheduled event. Sometimes we think just because we schedule an event, well, he's not going to show up. It has to be all spontaneous, which I am like Mr. Spontaneous. I love it. But I'm going to tell you what, he can come in a scheduled event. Pentecost was a scheduled event. The seventh festival was a scheduled event. He can come. He came in, in Pentecost, and it said that there was a sound, just like these singers, right, of a mighty, violent wind that filled the house. And then what? Fire, tongues of fire, right, set on their head. They began to speak in tongues until other people in other nations heard their language. Unity. Unity. Oh, let's go right there. I want to talk about that a little bit more. The fire and the glory. I just feel the Holy Spirit on this. Go to real, real quick me to John 15 or 14. No, 17. John 17. I got to do it in this one. John 17. Whoo. The fire and the glory. How many know there's just a difference between the fire and the glory, y'all? John chapter 17. I want to just show us this here. All right, in John 17, verse 22, we know that Jesus is praying his prayer, right? This is like the Lord's prayer that's going to be answered. Listen to what he says. There's a key in here. Let me make sure I got that right. 22. There was one, oh, no, I'm sorry, 17. Start in verse 17. John 17, 17, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Do you see the repeating word? It's sanctify. The Greek word for sanctify, right? Set apart. Holiness under the Lord. The imagery for this word in the Greek is to hollow out. It's like if you were to take a big stump and you were to hollow out the inside. 
and it would be completely hollow on the inside, empty, if you will. Empty. It's empty, why? So it could be filled with something. So the sanctification here, the setting of the part, is I believe it's a reference to the fire of God. Because the fire of God has a specific function in our life as believers. And one of the most primary functions for the fire of God is to purify our hearts, our attitudes, our actions, and to hollow out all of the world and all of those things inside of us that are not in the kingdom. That's why the fire of God comes. Has anybody ever experienced the fire of God on their life? I'm going to tell you what, there's nothing like it. Nothing like it. I remember, whoo, I was in a small Bible college in Dunn Heritage, and, and I remember one time we were having an English class, English class. And we did, they would do devotionals before the class. It wasn't even my turn to do the devotional. But I remember the Lord stirring on me that day. I didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He just got a hold of me. And I remember sitting in my dorm room on my bed before class, and I was reading the book of Jeremiah where it talks about if I hold your word in, it'll be like a fire shot up in my bones. And, man, I, I just could not contain it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what was happening to me. But I couldn't, I couldn't stop shaking. I'm in my room. No one's around. And I'm thinking, what is going on? So I go to English class. And by this time, I'm like under the weight of something. I don't even know what's happening. So the professor, who is a very educated man, he's a pastor, but he's also a very refined, polished, educated man, that's not in for all the, you know, that could be like, what is that, emotionalism? <laughs> so we, we, we start the class, and all of a sudden, the devotional speaker wasn't there. He asked who has a word, and my hand shot up before I can even control. And when I got up, I just opened my mouth. I didn't read a scripture or anything, and all I can remember is a river flowed out of me that was like fire. I can't even remember all of it. The next thing I know, I was on face on the ground in the middle of English class. Face on the ground. And then I got, <laughs> I'm good. You're just like this. I'm just like, <sighs> you know, breathing when you're praying real hard like that. And then I, I got up. And it's quiet. You can hear a pin drop. Everybody's like. <laughs> and, you know, you got this whole, oh, my gosh, I humiliated feeling. Now I got to sit for an hour with these people in class. And I sat down, and it was like, hmm. <laughs> didn't talk about it. We didn't acknowledge it. But praise God for that man. He had a lot of spirit on him. Very humble man. He took me at the end of the class, and he goes, Michael. He was from Ghana. He said, do you know what happened to you? I said, no. He said, that, my brother, was the fire of God. <laughs> fire of God. <laughs> I said, <laughs> And he said, you gave us an oracle. So he, I remember saying, you gave us an oracle from the Lord. He said, well done, my brother. <laughs> I was like, what happened? But I remember walking away from that. And I, even that night, me and Amber actually went out to Sagebrush and were having dinner. And I was eating a buffalo chicken sandwich. Don't ask me why. Just food's always ingrained. But I remember so fired up in the restaurant. Do you remember that, Am? I was so fired up in the restaurant, I said, Amber, something is going on inside of me, and I don't know what it is. I am two seconds away from standing on our dinner table and just beginning to preach to every living thing in here. 
hey, you keep hanging out with Jesus. I'm telling you, man, he'll be, he'll be putting you in situations and things. You'll be doing things. You'll be like, wow. But like Brother Adam, good word, Adam, after church Sunday, Adam says, you know, this thing about foolishness. If we just look foolish for the Lord, his presence comes in a powerful way. It does. And so I think he's looking for that, sidetracking, but the fire of God. There's nothing like the fire of God. So what is its purpose? It's to purify. It's to purify. So when the fire came down at the dedication service in that, in that meeting, God was answering. He was consuming the sacrifices. He was listening to all the forgiveness. He was taking note of all the repentance. He was seeing that the people's hearts was right, that there was proper alignment, and it moved him. Fire came and consumed the offering. Fire came and consumed the offering, but that's not the end. Because after the fire, look what Jesus says in John 22. I have now given them, listen to this, the glory Remember you hear in the Old Testament, right, that the Lord said, I will not share my glory with another. But I believe it was a, 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 I can't remember who said it. It was a minister that said it. But we are not. Bill Johnson? Bill Johnson said, we are not another. We are the lovers. You know, we're not another. We belong to him. What a powerful revelation. And so he said, I'm going to share my glory with you. Look, I have given them the glory that you gave me. But now here is why. Why did God give them the glory? So that, listen to me now, hear my heart, so that, so that gold dust can show up, which we'll welcome that because it's signs of his presence sometimes. Feathers, all these things. I mean, we've been in meetings with rubies and stuff. It's calm. And we're like, wow, gold teeth. I watched the guys get a gold tooth one night in a meeting. We were at Potter's Wheel when Neil had the tin up. 13 men on drug addiction from the recovery center got gold teeth one night in a meeting when it was pouring down rain. Gold teeth formed right in their mouth. I don't know the answers to that, but I'm just taking it as these are signs and wonders that are confirming that God's there, that the message is true. That's what the Word says. But what I just want us to see is that as we can be excited about those things like little children, but we can't get too off track off those things because that's not the primary purpose for the glory. So what is the primary purpose for the glory? I'm going to give you the glory that you gave me that they may be one. As we are one, that's the ultimate purpose of the glory. That they would be one as we are one, I in them, and they in me. I cannot believe it's after 8 o'clock. Holy mackerel. Okay, wrapping it up. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Here's very, if you guys like it simple, here's how it is for me. The fire comes to purify, and the glory comes to unify. Come on. The fire comes to purify, and the glory comes to unify. And you have both expressions when the ark and the tent of Moses are intertwined. And when the, the, the revelation of day and night worship and prayer and the revelation of the sound and the message come together with the revelation of the wisdom of the revelation of the priesthood in the world, when all of that comes together in one place, there is complete unity. In the upper room, when they were gathered in one place, 
tongues of fire came. Did you ever realize that, exact, that these two things happened almost identical to each other? They're in Jerusalem when the fire comes down in Second Chronicles. And they're in Jerusalem when Pentecost breaks out, almost in the exact same spot. So that's not coincidence. That's all, all interesting. Hit the next slide. I'm going to go three more minutes. Is that okay, guys? Good three minutes? I'm going to go right through this prophetic significance of this. So as you can guess, the whole prep point of David's tabernacle, God rebuilding that in the earth today, is to provide unity. Unity. Because as you can see, until there's unity, until there's complete oneness, the glory can't come because it's weighty. And the only thing that can hold the weight of the glory is a unified people who are diverse but are connected, God knows, through the spirit of Jesus. So there's generational unity that has to take place. We're beginning to see that. Priestly and Levitical unity, what does that look like? That's, we got on that line. That's when the, the pastor is in unison with the worship leaders. The priests and the Levites are coming together, and the fathers of the house are coming to the sons of worship to the house. And there's unity between what's happening from the message and the sound and or the, the, the words and what's happening in the worship. We have to have unity there. That's what's happening. Theological unity. It is a merger with the spirit and the word. Oh, I don't have time, but if I could just tell you, Smith Wigglesworth. The great revivalist out of England prophesied in the last days that the coming last day revival, this is 1907, the coming last day revival would be a revival where the spirit and the word are remerged and married again. David's tabernacle brings that reality. Tribal unity. All the tribes unite. This is denominational unity. This is no cliques in the church. This is where we are. We are not exclusive, but inclusive, we're, or no, excuse me, we're, we're exclusive, not inclusive. Do you understand what I mean? Well, we're not just holding and, and, you know, just like only you can come in because I like you and, you know, all that stuff, but that we have a vulnerability about us because we're laboring to work together as one. Come on. Ethnic and cultural unity, all classes of people. This is when the black and the white Rich and the poor, Republican and Democrat, the whole, all the polarization of how people are divided today, it can come into unity. When day and night worship and prayer is going and the presence of God is central, he has an ability to bring all of that together. Hit that last slide. Hit one more. Here's the last one. I just want us to see the purpose of David's tabernacle. Here are the seven things we learned in this class. It restores the spirit of intercession. Remember that? Territorial intercession, national intercession. Remember David sacrificing the blood and the bulls and the goats, wearing the ephod, breaking the curse that was over the house of the priest from Eli and his wicked sons. So there was this whole movement of territorial intercession that released restoration in the priesthood. The power of the priesthood returned. They had lost their power because they had lost their purity. Purity equals power in the kingdom. And so through this ordeal, the power of the priesthood was restored. God-centered presence was restored. So the kingdom became God-centered. The ark was central. Jesus was central. God was central. Look, number four, the purity of holiness. This is something that God is doing in our day. He is returning us to holiness. Pure, I mean genuine, authentic holiness of heart. 
Number five, authentic and genuine prophecy. David's tabernacle provided a culture of prophecy, healthy prophecy, powerful prophetic words and messages that changed everything. The sound and the message. This is the restoration of when the sermon begins to run with the song. Woof. And as we hit tonight, the ultimate goal of David's tabernacle is to return the glory back to the church. Stand with me. Thank you, Lord. Woo! Grab somebody's hand next to you. And let's just thank the Lord for, for this. Mm, thank you, Lord. Father, we just thank you tonight. Lord, we thank you for this class. We thank you for this series. Lord, we just get excited. We're them Global River folk that just get excited when we start seeing it and tasting it, Lord. And so, God, we just say we welcome you, Lord. We want to see your presence come. We want to see your spirit come. And, Lord, my prayer is, this is Solomon prayed, you know, forgive us, God, of, of doing it in our own way. So many times we want to do it in our own way and don't even realize it. Help us, Jesus, to be aware, Holy Spirit, to look to you, to inquire from you so that we can be unified in our, in our efforts. God, I pray for unity with our Spanish church. I pray for unity with our English church. I pray for unity in our, our children's and our youth, our oasis and, and our prime timers. God, I pray for that generational unity to flood this house, God. We pray for that unity, that, that unity between the pastors and the worship leaders. We thank you that we have that, Lord, that you're moving us into this realm. We thank you for that. And, Lord, we just say we welcome, Lord, we welcome the fire and the glory. We welcome the fire and the glory to return back to your house. And, Lord, we say that we just want to be a people that it's not going to go to our head. We don't want it to go to our head. We want to give you our crowns. And we want to just give you glory, honor, and praise, Father. And so, Lord, we just thank you tonight. And we just, as a church, as one bride here, we just say we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, next Wednesday night, worship night, come ready to throw down.